0: Our passage this morning is Romans chapter 12, 9 through 19. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Romans 9, or 12, chapter 12, rather, starting in verse 9, Paul just kind of unleashes a barrage of commands, as you've seen. We love to be able to ring words dry uh, when we gather together, and sometimes that's not possible. Here's one of those times where it's probably not possible to ring every word dry. Uh, there's a book that was written about the 1932 Olympic gold medal rowing team from the U.S., uh, and it's called Boys in the Boat, and there's one member of this crew whose name was Joe, and, and he was getting advice uh, from kind of a seasoned veteran in the rowing world. And here's what he said. He said to Joe, he said, There were times when you seemed to think that you were the only fellow in the boat, if it was up to you to row the boat across the finish line all by yourself. He says that when a, when a man rolled like that, he was bound to attack the water rather than to work with it. And worse... He was bound to not let his crew, which would have been a crew of eight, to help him row. And what mattered more than how hard a a man rowed was how well everything he did in the boat harmonized with what the other fellows were doing. And a man couldn't harmonize with his crewmates unless he opened his heart to them. He had to care about his crew. It wasn't just the rowing, but his crewmates that he had to give himself up to. In a like way, Paul's talking about the people of God, the, the people who belong in Christ and who, because they belong in Christ, belong to others who belong in Christ, and that belonging to one another is a place where there is to be great care and love for one another so that we can pull together. It's not just about how hard we're we're at the oars. It's about our care and our love for one another in the midst of that pulling all together. So it's not just about how the rowing goes, but what marks our actual community together. And and Paul, in, in these verses in Romans chapter 12, he begins to just give out just a barrage of the marks of the Christian community, of the local church with this Kind of, you you could say, maybe a cord of love that's threaded throughout that gives expression to, here's what your love should look like amongst you. Here are the marks that you should have in this community. This love for God, this love for one another, this is what it's to look like in your midst. And so what Paul does here is he just throws the seeds out widely. He doesn't give much detail on any of them or how to make them grow or anything like that. It, It seems as if almost even Paul trusts the Holy Spirit to take these widely cast seeds for this Roman church and say, grow them where you will grow them, I'm just going to throw them out. So he he just gives us this barrage, like he just throws the bombs out and expects and, and has this confidence that the Holy Spirit will detonate the ones that need to be detonated in their midst. And that's our goal this morning as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which was kind of has mirrored, right? last week we talked about spiritual gifts and belonging to one another, very similar to 1 Corinthians 12. It gives way to 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says, let me show you even a better way, and he goes into this great chapter of love, it's similar to what he does here. He just finishes a short portion, very brief, on some spiritual gifts, and then he kind of says, all right, all right, let me show you a better way. Let me show you a higher way. Here's what our belonging and our functioning should look like, and it's to be marked by and threaded throughout it is to be love. So verse 9, he says, Let love be genuine, sincere, genuine. In other words, what he's getting at is he wants love in their midst to be without hypocrisy, a hypocrite. that in, in ancient Greek times, it was a word that was used for actors that were playing a part of the theater. And what they would do as they were playing a part is they would put on a mask. And as they'd put on this mask, then they'd take on and assume the role that they were playing at the theater. So they'd be wearing this mask, and with a mask, they'd play this part, and the real person that was behind the mask was actually hidden. And that's what Paul is saying should not happen in the Christian community. You think of Judas Iscariot. Here's a man who, who belonged with the disciples, right? He was one of the crew. He seemed to be rowing along with them, functioning along with them. No one knew that this was going to be the betrayer, right? When Jesus says, someone's going to betray me, they come all and they all say, like, is it going to be me? Because they don't know that it's the obvious choice that Judas is going to be the one because he belonged and functioned in their midst. He was wearing a mask. They didn't know which one it was. He didn't have sincere love. And eventually it came off. Or or rather, Jesus kind of unmasked him. He, he, He comes to Jesus... And he kisses him when he betrays him. And he says, you betray me with a kiss. And with that, the mask fell. And all masks are going in that direction. Remember in Romans chapter 2, verse 16, Paul says that that God is going to judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And Jesus is going to unmask everybody one day. And he says, Paul says, for the Christian community, now love is to be without masks. There's no pretending. It's not fake. It's not conjured up. It's not a love that's only exterior but not actually hitting the actual heart. Paul Paul says, no, let love be genuine. And here's what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, here, Christian community, you need to unmask all the Judases around you. He doesn't say that. He goes in the positive direction. The positive command here is to love. Let it be sincere. Let it be genuine. And, and so instead of looking around and thinking, who do I need to unmask? A better question is to say, what way am I putting on a mask? In what way might my love be insincere? What way am I I showing up and putting on something that's not the real heart of my life? Here's the reality of mask is that you you wear a mask long enough and it's going to exhaust you. You won't be able to keep up appearances for long. And and give give it some difficulty, give it some suffering, give it some tension, and that mask is going to drop off. You don't you, be unmasked. You'll lay it aside when other loves that you have that are higher than this, whatever you were in the mask for, they'll, they'll come up and they'll show themselves as prominent and that mask will come off. And so the invitation here is to lay it aside right now. If, if you're masked today, here's, here's the really good news of what Paul is getting ready to say is that it should be really easy for you to drop the mask in the Christian community. Because this is a community that's to be marked by sincere love. And so when you drop your mask, you're not going to a place where you're going to be, uh, you know, just like heaped up on shame and guilt for all the ways that you've deceived us in the past. This should be a place where we're going to move towards you and wrap arms around you in love and say, I'm so glad you finally dropped the mask. Now we can get down into this life that God has called us to together. So Christians are to be this community of people who have sincere love for one another. And we know who that one another is. We're looking around the room like he's saying is one another's. They have names and they have faces to go with this. And the community of, of Christ is to be a community of people full of sincere love because they're the ones who are following after Jesus. And Jesus has this kind of sincere love, doesn't he? In John chapter 13, verse 1, it says he loved them all to the end. You know who was in that room when that verse was written? Who was in the room was Judas. He was in that room. That included Judas. He he loved him with a sincere and genuine love. And we're following that, Lord. How are we to do that? How are we to love with sincerity? How how about with some people that we may not naturally be connected with? Or even maybe naturally like or have any similarities with? How are we to love with sincere love those kind of people? I think John 13 gives us a, a, a kind of a way to do this. He serves them, he gets down low, and he washes their feet. And there's a principle there, although, man, not a bad place to start by just serving the people you don't think you love. But he says, hey, since I've served you, you go serve like that, you go do things like that. Then he's going to tell them later, he says, love one another as I've loved you. So you've been loved by me, now go do that same kind of thing. And so the the first step, it's it's not by looking to others and and seeing their uh, loveliness, or if we're trying to figure out and justify how they're lovable, that's not how we start. It's first by receiving the love of Christ and, and then moving toward others with that same kind of love that we've received. Right? We, we receive from Christ and we move outward with that same kind of love. That's, I've loved you, now, now go love others. Genuine love is love that's to be pulsing through our midst because we have been loved. And, and that automatically means something, right? That this genuine love is not a love that's defined by whatever we want. Love's not whatever we want it to be. It's not whatever prevalent definition is out in the culture. We think of love so often it seems like, or the culture would define love as some sort of like unconditional affirmation. Just whatever you want is good. That love is love. You've likely heard these things. And yet those so easily cave in on themselves, don't they? There's no substance to hold them unconditional affirmation, that couldn't be love. If I told my kids that you can eat whatever you want, and they said, well, how about I eat uh, all the liquid bleach that you have in your house, that would not be an unconditional way of love. And so love can't be whatever you want. Or or love is love. Well, that caves in on itself really quickly too, doesn't it? This team that I talked about in the Boys in the Boat, that was was before the the Berlin Games, right Right before uh, World War II. Right here's, here's a man who led that country that had a great love, didn't he? Is that a good love? That love led to the death of millions. And so love can't just be whatever we want. Those, those kinds, love is love, unconditional affirmation, those things fall apart so easily. You no, know, the kind of love that Paul wanted to be in our midst, this genuine love, this sincere love, was a love with, with actual substance, love that was shaped like the last time he mentioned love in Romans. That was in chapter 5, verse 8. Do you remember that verse? That God demonstrates his love, same word for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the kind of love that he wants pulsing through them. That's the kind of sincerity and, and genuineness that he wants in the love of the Christian community. A love that's saying, I'm willing to lay down my life for the good of others. That's the kind of love that should be pulsing in us and through us. So love can't be some sort of unconditional affirmation. That wouldn't be the love of Christ that we've received. It it couldn't be some sort of mere sentimentalism. It it can't be any definition of love that we want. No, genuine love for one another has a certain shape. It flows from God. It looks like Jesus who was love in the flesh. It's cruciform shaped with one another. There's also a clear moral shape that informs that love and is to mark that community. In verse 9 he continues, Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Let's not skip by the fact that there are actual categories of evil and actual categories of good. That those do exist and they're not just subjective categories. They they are clear moral categories that are there and exist. Evil is known. Paul says in chapter 1, they know All, no, all are without excuse, he says in chapter 1. It's revealed. that They have a conscience. They have the the creation that testifies of the divine attributes and the nature and the glory of God. So people know in some sense what evil is and in some sense what good is. And the essence of evil is found in chapter 1, verse 25. That's the ultimate essence of evil. What they do there, chapter 1, verse 25, they serve the created things over the creator. There's the essence there. Not worshiping God. Not seeing God as the one who is ultimately worthy of all of my love, all of my affection, all of my worship. It's a failure of worship, not to do what God has told us to do, not to be who God has told us to be. And Paul says you need to abhor what is actually evil. That is to stand against it, oppose it. Because now by God's mercies, you're presenting your life as a living sacrifice to God. Because you now see, by God's mercies, that he is the one who's worthy of all of our worship. And so we're not giving way to that evil anymore. We're saying, no, he's worthy of it. I shouldn't send that worship to other places because he is the one who's worthy of it. So abhor what is evil. But the, the other side of that exact same coin, and these two belong together, they have to go together. You cannot have one of these without the other just by nature of these words. The other side is to hold fast to, be glued to what is good. And what is good, ultimately, again, it's the same essence as the, oh, what is ultimately evil. Like the, the failure to worship God, to serve created or worship created things over the creator, that's the essence of evil. The, the essence of what is good and to hold fast to what is good is to hold fast to what is worshiping God and directing praise and worship to God. So it's to see God as good and as the source of good. To, to see God as the one to, who we want to give everything to. Verse one, like, present our bodies as a living sacrifice to Him. Be glued to the truth to say, I'm, I'm going to stick with this in the worship of the one true living God, come what may. The poor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. There's this book by, by George MacDonald. He was Scottish, and he, she's kind of started fantasy novels. Um, and, he, and he wrote this book called The Princess and Curdy. And in this book, the this man named Curdy, he he does some harm to a bird and, and kind of the figure there is this lady wisdom and she's talking to him and, and he says to her you know i didn't mean to do any harm ma'am and she says back again kind of the figure of maybe lady wisdom godmother kind of figure she says well you say you didn't mean any harm did you mean any good no he answered well remember then that whoever does not mean good is always in danger of harm And here's my concern, is that many may not actually mean to do good, they just, we want to avoid harm. And when we just want to avoid harm and you don't want to actually do good, you're in danger of harm. And God calls us to better. Abhor what is evil, hold fast what is good. Don't do harm, that's a good start, but that's not where we should be. To abhor what is evil is more than just don't do harm, it's to positively do good. And that's what God calls Christians to in community, to positively move in a direction, to move toward the good, to hold fast to what is good with one another. In verse 10, he continues, saying, love one another with brotherly affection. There's that word that, that you know, even if you don't know it, it's, it's Philadelphia. Right? That's the word there. The, the place of brotherly love isn't just to be a city in Pennsylvania, it's to be the local church. The Christian community, that's Philadelphia, that's the place of brotherly love. Notice as he talks about this love for one another, he uses that word and that image, this brotherly, sisterly love, family words, right? He, he doesn't draw from other words that he could have had there, right? Military words, he doesn't say, let your love be like an army. There would have been some some camaraderie in that, some connectiveness in that. He doesn't draw from that word. He he doesn't draw from a city where you're kind of working together for something, you're existing together. He doesn't draw from that. He draws from the family to speak of the love that's required in the Christian community, required of love to one another. The the family, that's the place of belonging. The church isn't a family of families, it's a family. There's a difference, Right? This is a family. It's a place of belonging. So those that aren't singles, there's a family. There's not cliques. There's a family. There's not clubs. There's a family. And then these relationships are not transactional. I don't give you something, you, you return it, and then we keep going in reciprocal fashion. That's not what family does. It's not transactional. It's not peripheral to life either. It's central to life. At the very heart of daily living in daily life is Family, and, and that's what he's saying. You live with these people. It's central to who you are and how you exist. And this command is certainly needed. To love one another with brotherly, sisterly affection. We know that this is needed. Because we have these kinds of you know, kooky Eddies around us. Crazy Aunt Idas. Goofy Grandpa Joes. Like they, they exist. They're out there. And we're, I'm one of them. Right? You're one of them. And, and guess what happens with those kind of people? They say some crazy things every now and then, right? You get them around the dinner table long enough and, and uh, Grandpa Joe is going to say something weird. But we don't treat them like everybody else treats them and then move on. Right? They're, they're part of the family. When, when everyone else moves on, family stays at it. We say, when they say crazy stuff like that, we like, say, actually, they're one of us. And he might be having a bad day, but he's one of us. He belongs Still in this family. Family doesn't move away from others. Family stays together when even some crazy things are going on in their midst. And he says to love one another with that kind of love. This fam- familial kind of love. Brotherly affection. Sisterly affection. So as we look around, that's the kind of affection love we're to have for one another. So maybe, maybe there's someone you need to move toward in that kind of love to today. But Paul keeps just a barrage of these marks of Christian community going. He says, outdo one another in showing honor. I think there's a couple different options here for what he is getting at with outdo one another in showing honor. The first is to say, he could be saying more like, you need to be the first in showing honor to one another. You need to lead out in showing honor to one another. Right? Get out there and be the one that's doing this. The second option is to, almost like Philippians chapter 2, to prefer one another. He says, let each of you not look to your own interests, but look to the interests of others. Considering their interests above your own, that's Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. So it could be lead in showing honor or prefer one another in showing honor. And and at the end of the day, the the difference isn't that big between the two. And we know we for sure have the one that says prefer one another in honor in Philippians chapter 2. And so why not just take both of them? Who wouldn't want to be a part of a community where there was others trying to lead and outdo one another in showing honor or prefer others in honor? Who wouldn't want to be a part of that? And of course, we should be able to do that because verse 3, right? Like, by the grace given me, I say to everyone not to think of himself more highly than ought, but to think with sober judgment. Like, we're, we're not thinking of ourselves highly. We're, we're looking to others. We're, we're seeing the honor in others. We're not looking at it in ourselves. We're looking at it to others. And he says, show honor. Honor, what it does is it actually values others. It's saying that there's esteem and value in our midst, in other people. There's a viewing one another with dignity, this honor to one another. It knows no hierarchy. It knows no class. And so in other words, in the Christian community, there is no one that should go without honor because there is no one without honor. And this makes the Christian community unique. One historian said this, that every human being possessed an equal dignity was not remotely a self-evident truth. A Roman would have laughed at it. And is that no less true now? We look at people by what they can do and accomplish and be, or what they can provide, and honor And outdo one another in showing honor leaves no room for that. There is an inherent worth and dignity and value in human beings. And Paul wants that to be expressed in the Christian community. And so when we're outdoing one another in showing honor, that's the only competition that the Christian community is to have. Like let's outdo one another in this, not competing in other things. Let's compete in preferring one another. Let's compete in leaning out and showing honor to one another. And what this does is it leaves no room for despising or looking down on others. It gives us no room for for bullying or one upping each other in conversation. Like oh you did that well. Have you heard about how I did this? It leaves no room for complaining about one another, lying to one another, gossiping about one another, tearing one another down, demonizing one another in our differences, or competing because the competition is to outdo one another in honor right we don't have a i see this in in kids all the time right within families they're like hey i had that first no i had it first there's a all right we got to see who had it first but that's not the rule of family right it's not about justice all the time it's about outdoing one another and showing honor and so you had it first well who cares i'm gonna prefer you in honor right that's what we're to do with one another that's the competition to our have. And so what honor does is it makes room for the opposite. It makes room for listening. It makes room for preferring others, for affirming others, for speaking the truth and love to one another. It's like golden rule kind of dignity that we have. What would I want and how can I do that for them? And Paul leads out in this. In Romans chapter 16, we're going to see this. But in Philippians chapter 2, right after that passage where he says to prefer one another, listen to what he does. Verse 19 I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. And I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I shortly myself will come to you also. He looks at Timothy and he says, This is a man of honor. I want to honor him even publicly in front of you. And then he does the same with Epaphroditus in the next portion of Philippians chapter 2. He leads in showing honor. He's preferring them in honor. And what he does here is he gives honor in a way that honor's not flattery. It's not what he's doing here. He's not being flattering of these guys. He's truthfully naming their value where there's actual value in Christ's people. When we honor one another, we hold one another in everyone's best. Light, not the worst. And when we are outdoing one another, showing honor, we're looking out for, we're trying to find, we're seeking out evidences of grace in one another so that we can honor those things. We're affirming God's image in people and Christ's character being formed within and being worked without. So we are trying to find where has that glory that has broken into the present life begun in another person. That's outdoing one another and showing honor. And church, it is not to be reserved for obituaries. This is not a future command. Show it one day when someone dies. Then tell them that you love them. Then tell them how they're honorable. Outdo them right now in showing honor. Lead in showing honor. Prefer one another in honor. Write a note. Get coffee with them and tell them, I want to honor you. Make a way to follow this command. Don't wait. Ask, who who do I need to be showing honor to right now? Maybe today. This morning. And Paul, he... As he does with most of this passage, he, he moves on quickly. And he's going to rattle off a, a couple different sets of three more commands. Hinting, I think, in both sets that they belong together. So in verse 11, he says, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. There's three more commands. I, I think maybe they even, we could say perhaps the third channels the other two. But all three of them belong together. So Christians aren't to give in to passivity, right? Don't be slothful in zeal. Don't give in to passivity or inactivity or or perhaps even thinking about Galatians chapter 6 where he says, don't grow weary of of doing good. When you grow weary, then you just want to stop and take a rest. He says, don't give in to that. Instead, here's the opposite, Be, be fervent in spirit, be burning in the spirit to serve the Lord. Now, the spirit here could be the Holy Spirit or it could be our own spirit, If it's the spirit that's just our own spirit, like internally, then we know that if we're going to be fervent in that spirit, that it's going to be the Holy Spirit that's going to have to quicken us and enliven us, stir us in order for that to happen. These commands are so important because of the last command, and the last command kind of channels the other two. Serve the Lord. It's important that we not be slothful in zeal, that we be fervent in spirit, because the one we're serving is the Lord, the one who is worthy of all, all of our effort, all of our energy, all of our love, all of our worship, we are to be hard after that. And he says, so here's what you do. Don't be slothful and zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. We're not serving man. We're not serving creative things. We're serving The Lord, and knowing the privilege of serving the Lord can keep us from that kind of passivity that we could be tempted to go into, can keep us from growing weary of doing good because we're not serving man, we're serving the Lord. It can keep that that flame of, of desire and energy burning within us because, again, we're serving the Lord. Desires can flag, right? Energy can wane, disappointment can grow, but Christian, we serve the Lord. So let's keep at it. And then Paul moves on. Three more, right? Verse 12. Rejoice in hope. Each one of these could be wrung dry, right? Like these are massive commands, but he just says them and moves on. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. I've, it stuck with me this quote from Ed Welch. He said of hope that hope is the future that reaches into the present. And in Christ, that future is not wishful thinking, it's not a dream. It's not unstable. That actual hope is certain. And it is a certain destination for those who are in Christ. In chapter 5, verse 2, he says, we rejoice in the hope of what? Of the glory of God. The very thing that he says, if you're in Christ, that's where you're moving. That's your destination. You're going in that direction. You are Headed to glory. And actually, if you're in Christ right now, that glory has begun in you as that future has reached into the present and has started something in you that won't stop until he's completed it. And because we have that certain hope, we can rejoice. Notice that the the source, the source of joy here is that hope. And so rejoicing is planted down deep in the soil uh, uh, that should always produce It should always produce joy because it never waxes or wanes. And perhaps this is so closely connected with the next one, right? Patience and tribulation. Because our joy is beyond this world, because that's true, we can endure the suffering in this world. Like, that doesn't shift. And so the things that shift here and now, even the things that are painful here and now, shouldn't be able to take away that joy because our joy isn't rooted here. It's rooted in eternity. And it's certain and sure and stable. And so we have tribulation here. It's like it hasn't affected and won't be able to affect our future. And so we can rejoice in hope and we can be patient in tribulation. Now, Paul couldn't have known how these words would have prepared this church for exactly what was coming, and and something hard was coming, right? They were going to face some serious persecution. Nero, if you've heard of him infamously, is going to take over, and he's going to lead the Romans in some great persecutions of Christians. Perhaps some of the people that were reading these words were going to get burned at the stake, lighting up his parties as he tried to destroy the people of God. And Paul says before that happens, hey, you need to be patient in tribulation. He knew tribulation was coming, whether he knew what it looked like or not, and he wanted them to be ready. He wanted them to be like Jesus. He wanted them to have his character, and his character in the midst of suffering is a patient character, an enduring character. This is how Jesus faced the cross. We read similar words in Hebrews chapter 12. It says, Jesus, who was the founder and perfecter of our faith, the the pioneer and perfecter, the one that we're following after. He's led the way and we're just going after Him. For the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And consider Him, who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted when you follow in His footsteps. Here's what He says, consider Him, fix your eyes on Him, I love the principle from Robert Murray McShane. He said, for every look you have toward yourself, take ten looks to Christ. That's the idea. In the midst of tribulation, in the midst of suffering, it's really easy to want to dive inward and think, woe is me or a million other things, complain about your situation and circumstance. And yet what we need to do in those midst is to fix our eyes on him, to consider him. Every look we take to ourselves, and there will probably be some when we're in the midst of suffering and tribulation, we're to look ten more times to Christ and who he is and what he has done so that we can endure, so that we can be patient in the midst of our tribulation amen Charles Spurgeon said this he said we need patience under pain and hope under depression of spirit right he's putting these two verses together right we need patience under pain and hope under depression of spirit our God will either make the burden lighter or the back stronger he will diminish the need or increase the supply and so we can rejoice in hope and be patient in tribulation faith in the midst of tribulation and suffering is displayed in this way it's displayed in patience and endurance. And this gives way to the third command of this set of three. Right? Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Be constant in prayer. This is a repeated thing that Paul calls for amongst Christian community. In Colossians chapter 4 he says continue steadfastly in prayer. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 he says pray without ceasing. Right, This constancy, this Devotion to prayer shows the importance that Paul places on prayer in the life of the believer and in the life of the Christian community. Constancy. Be constant in prayer. It shows moment-by-moment moment dependency, moment-by-moment moment relationship. That's what it is. We have actual relationship with God the Father through Christ the Son. Right? The, the spirit that has been given to us is a spirit that cries out something. It cries out, Abba, Father. There's a relational relationship intimate connection that we have with the one true living God. And it's a dependent relationship because we have to cry out in our need and desperation. And so constancy in prayer is moment by moment dependency upon God in our relationship with God, enjoying Him, depending on Him, receiving from Him. And it is like breathing. Now, breathing is not always easy, but it is always necessary. It is constant and you know this right but if you're breathing normally like it's, it's kind of like you don't even think about it anymore but when it gets hard you think about it and and gasping for air isn't supposed to be the norm so i'm not a medical doctor but if you're constantly gasping for air like you need to see a medical doctor that that's not how it is supposed go. And Christians can so often, maybe by tribulation, can get pushed under the water and feel like they can't breathe, there's no prayer. It seems like everything is cut off and they man, every now and then God is kind enough to just yank them up and give them a gasp of breath. And that happens sometimes, but that is not to be the norm. If you're gasping constantly something is wrong. And my guess is, is that when we're gasping in prayer, like we go long periods of time without praying, then there's something working on our lives. My guess is, in some way, it is practical atheism. There are ways that we don't believe practically, daily, moment-by-moment moment life, that we actually need God or have a relationship with God, and so we don't pray. And so to be constant in prayer, what we need is a theological foundation, that we are in Christ, that we are God's children, that we are dependent upon him, that God is with us, that God is near to us, that he cares for us, that he's sovereign over all things, that he wants to hear from us, that he has given us this gift of prayer to relate to him. Here's what's happens so often when we speak about prayer is that it's so easy to to bring conviction for the amount of time or the lack of time that you're devoting to prayer it's easy to kind of hit that button and for all of us to feel like man i just haven't prayed enough because who would say i've prayed as much as i've ever needed to and i will continue to for the rest of my life like most people wouldn't say that and if you do there's a few verses at the end of this that we need to listen to right that but it's easy for that kind of conviction to, to soak in. And then what happens is, is, that we start focusing on praying more. And that, we do need to focus on praying more, but that's not first, right? When we have conviction for our lack of prayer, what we need to first focus on is God himself. Amen. And when we focus our, our hearts on God, when we view his mercies, right? What does that do for those who have the spirit within them? And it leads them to pray. Yeah, we need some work on prayer, but we need first to focus not on praying, but first focus on God. And in Christ, we have a relationship with Him. That's the kind of thing that leads us to prayer. So it has a theological foundation, but it has a practical application. And I mean very practical. There is no drifting into prayer. It doesn't, it's not something you're going to just drift into. So here's what you need. You need practical application. You need to plan to pray. One, one author, D.A. Carson, I will have this up there, but he said, we, we don't pray in large part because we don't plan to pray. Do you plan to pray? Right. We, it's breathing, right? It's important, it's relational, it's dependence. We need it. And, and so we need to make room for it. We need to plan for it. We need to make sure that that happens. Paul Miller says in his excellent book, The Praying Life, he says, if we think we can do life on our own, we will not take prayer seriously. There's your practical atheism, Right? I don't need God. Our failure to pray will always feel like something else, a lack of discipline or too many obligations. If we use that, like I'm too busy to pray. But when something is important to us, we make room for it. Prayer is simply not important to many Christians because Jesus is already an add-on. And here's what Paul is saying, Jesus is not an add-on, you're in Christ, you're giving your bodies, presenting them to the Lord as a living sacrifice, and so it's not an add-on, so make room to make sure that you're constant in your prayer. Make room for prayer, plan it. It needs a practical application, plan it. Put it in your calendar if that's what you do. Amen. The the Christian life, as he's stating, the the marks of the Christian life, the marks of Christian community are not things that we will drift into. They, They are lives together of intentionality of aim we're we're going for something and paul's he's pointing our aim he's saying here's about 30 things let's point your aim in those directions and let's move he, he sets the aim look into verse 13 contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality here's two commands of sharing life with one another now as he says this verse 13 contribute to the needs of the saints he's not just referencing like he doesn't say hey you know those guys in verse 8 who contribute in generosity? If you have the spiritual gift there, then this is who I'm directing uh, verse 13 to. It's not what he says. Those are the people that may lead it out, that may help organize it, that may be really, really helpful in how we carry these things out and encourage one another in these things. But he doesn't say, hey, if you have the spiritual gift, here's what you need to do. No, he's saying to all Christians, here's what you do. You contribute to the needs of the saints. Right? It's done by the family sharing in the family's needs you you see a need you move toward it because we're family right financial need material needs if it's within the family we're going to make sure none of our family goes in need we want to make sure that we share what we have so that no one in the family is in need so you share with material things but also he says seek to show hospitality seek it seek it out you be active in going after this. This is what Jesus has done for us, right? Those who are far off, he's the one who comes after the far off that he might bring them near and make them a part of the family of God. He's the one who came to seek and to save the lost. He's the one who gathers his family. How does he do it? By making his life open to us. Inviting us into life with him. He seeks out the lost. He comes with this great sense of hospitality. And Christian, you are those who Jesus has sought after and saved. And now he says, you need to go do likewise, right? You need to open up your life for others. You are the ones that now ought to be the most hospitable people in the world because God himself has been hospitable to you. Again, seek to show hospitality is not qualified by gifting. It is not qualified by amount of uh, financial or economic means, by the size of your house or whether you're an introvert or an extrovert. It's not qualified by any of those things. He just says, Christian, seek to show hospitality. I love the picture of this that we see in the book of Acts, chapter 16. We see a few pictures of this there. The first one is in chapter 16, verse 14, and this is of Lydia. There was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. She was a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God, and the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us, Paul says. She just says, hey, would you just come stay? Come on over and stay. And this happens again to Paul with the Philippian jailer in verse 33. He asks them, what does he need to do to be saved and they said believe in the Lord Jesus you and your household and you will be saved and and here's what this jailer does he took them the same hour of the night and he washed their wounds there's some hospitality he didn't have that stuff ready he's just like you've got wounds I want to meet them he was baptized at once he and all his family and then he broke or he brought them up into his house and he set food before them and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God now, I'm not saying that hospitality doesn't have some planning to it. There should be some intentionality in planning. But here's what these guys do. They just open up their lives. They just heard the gospel and their response is to say, without preparation, would you just come? Can I help take care of some needs that you might have, like a place to stay? You need some food? I, I haven't prepared the and calf. I just have this stuff that I've had in the, in the pantry here, but I'm just going to put it out before you. Is that this what you can do? That's what it is. So he says, seek to show hospitality. This is not entertainment. This is hospitality. There's a difference. Who In Christ, the family in Christ seeks to share their life with others who are in Christ. That's hospitality, to open up your life to one another. And, and it's ordinary. Nor, this is not fancy. This is not we've prepared everything in this great meal. Although that can be a part of it and should be a part of it at times. This is just, this has happened and I see a need. Would you just come stay at my house? That's what he's doing here. And so showing hospitality, contributing to the needs of the saints is an open pocketbook, it's open bread pantry, it's open home for one another. That's what he's saying. Share life with one another. And and both of these commands in verse 13 are not first about someone's spiritual gifting, not first about someone's position or financial status. They're about opening up life to others and sharing what's actually there. It's ordinary. And so for, for sojourn, this is not just like, oh, the home group hosts, those are the ones who are gifted with hospitality and are to open up their homes. No. Like, Christian, show hospitality. Seek it out. This is not just for pastors and deacons and home group leaders and hosts. Like, this is daily living our lives with one another openly as an expression of our Familial love to one another. Say, oh, you have a need? Let's meet that. Do you need a space? Like, let's meet that. Wounds? Like, let's go. Like, you, you need a place to eat some bread? Like, we have bread. Sharing our lives with one another. The string of commands are things that are to mark the family of God. Again, I think you can notice just this cord of love being threaded throughout it. The motivation is not salvation. The, the motivation is not greater status. The motivation is love. Let love be genuine. Remember, we haven't left verse 1, really, right? It's by God's mercies that these things flow. And this is going to hold true for verse 14 as well. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Paul, when he writes, he expects persecution. Peter says, "Don't, don't be surprised when you face fiery trials. Paul, I think knew that. He, he expected it. It doesn't mean all are going to receive it without exception. But Paul I think would say that the normal Christian life is a life that's going to be face persecution. So the, the norm is persecution, not the opposite. It doesn't mean the opposite won't happen. Like you, Maybe we'll live a life without persecution. Maybe we will. Maybe we won't. We don't know. But the norm is to face it. And in the midst of that norm of, of a world Jesus says, like, the world didn't love me. They're not going to love you. And in the world, you will have troubles, right? And in that kind of world, this command is needed. And two times he says this, bless. Maybe he says it twice because it's so unnatural in the midst of persecution, right? Cursing, that's easy in the midst of persecution. That takes no effort or intentionality or struggle at all. Like someone persecutes you, like maybe that's the first thing that wells up inside you to curse them. And he says, don't do that. Maybe silence in the midst of persecution is somewhat understandable, but to positively bless in the middle of persecution, now that's of the Spirit of God. And that's the point, isn't it? That's the point. Who in the world would want God's goodness poured out on people for doing such evil and persecuting us? I think only the people who know that while we are enemies with God, Christ demonstrated his love by dying for us. Those are the kind of people that can bless when they're being persecuted. Christians know, at, as if they're in Christ, they know both enmity with God and blessing from God. And they want God's blessing for those who are still at enmity with him. And so even if they're being persecuted, they bless and they don't curse. They also know, verse 15, both rejoicing and weeping. And that's what Paul says for the community to do together. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Both rejoicing and weeping are ongoing continuously in the body of Christ all the time. If you don't know someone who's weeping, then you need to get to know some more. If you don't know someone who's rejoicing, you need to get to know some more people, right? Like, that's always happening in our midst all of the time. Within the family, there's someone who's happy and there's someone who's sad all the time. In a room the size, like, there, there are many people rejoicing and many people re- 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 weeping at this very moment, likely. And Paul doesn't think in the midst of that Christian community where there's both those things happening at once, that rejoicing is hindering weeping or that weeping is hindering rejoicing. Both of those things belong together and go on together all the time. And so he can give a command like this. If you're rejoicing, like, there ought to be people that can rejoice with you. We do it together. Rejoice with those who rejoice. And if there's weeping, you need to weep along with them. Even if you're rejoicing, you can weep along with them. Weep with those who weep. Both are ongoing. Both are constant. Now, one author says this, that if your joy means you cannot mourn with others or your mourning means you cannot rejoice with others, then your emotions are too self-obsessed. They're not under your control, but rather, they control you. And church, we're to show genuine, sincere love toward one another. And what that does is that moves us outside of ourselves not controlled by our emotions anymore we're controlled by christ he says rejoice with those who rejoice and he says at the same time weep with those who weep we have love for one another and love for god and that is what controls us and it moves us toward others and so when we see someone who's rejoicing and we're weeping we're not satisfied with the distance there we move toward them and we see vice versa right we want to move towards them because we're not satisfied with the distance between us if i'm rejoicing and you're weeping i want to move towards you and vice versa and some of the best love, it comes in this way, right? He doesn't say, bring words of great wisdom. Right? Some of the best love comes with, not words, but silence. Job's friends, when they come to him after his great suffering, they did their best work by just sitting with him. And they started doing some really poor work when they opened their mouths. Some of the best love comes not with solutions, but with just sharing in whatever they're going through. Weeping with them. Some of the best love comes when we're just in the presence of one another sharing in what they're going through, rejoicing or weeping. I read recently this book by Sarah Williams. She's a Christian. I think she was a professor at Oxford or maybe still is. And she got pregnant and 20 weeks into her pregnancy, she found out that her baby wasn't going to live past birth or not long past birth because of a condition that this baby girl had. And at the same time, Some of their very dear daily life kind of friends were pregnant too. And they were going to share pregnancy together, share birth together. Kids were going to share life together. That was the vision of what was going to happen. And here's what she writes. They they called this other couple and told them when they found out of this condition. They called them and they told them that the, the baby is not going to live. And this couple, what they said is like, can we come over? And they came over. And here's what happened. They were telling them that they were going to lose the baby, and both of them, this other couple, began to cry. And here's what she writes. She said, I could not cry. I wanted to, but I felt stiff and uncomfortable. I was pushing them away. My eyes looked everywhere in the room but at them. You have been there? And Janet, this is her dear friend, was sitting next to me on the sofa, and she turned around, and she looked straight at me, brushing her tears to one side, and she said this well, I guess we've got a choice, haven't we? Sarah, the one with the child with the condition, said, i would had my fill of choices lately. I frowned, unsure of what she was about to say. And she goes on, we can either walk through this together or we can walk through it separately. We can either choose to share the pain together or we can choose not to. We can choose to love one another's babies or we can choose not to. And what Sarah writes is that her bravery in confronting my distance cut right through all the layers of defense and appealed directly to my hearts and to the integrity of our friendship to our genuine love Janet chose to grieve with me later I would have to choose to celebrate with her and she says both choices were costly but church that's what belonging to one another as the scripture calls us to is like that's family And some of us need to barge into some other houses and say, hey, we can either choose to do this separately or we can choose to do this together. And I choose to love along with you and weep along with you and rejoice along with you. And we need that reciprocated. That is genuine love. That is family love. And that's the love to be coursing through our life together as Christian community, as family. And if it does, we get verse 16, right? Harmony with one another. And that's the command. Live in harmony with one another. Live. There's actual life together. It's commanded in the scripture. Live in harmony with one another because you're living together. Life is together within the Christian community. And it's to be a harmonious life. That's the hope. Now, we know this could be difficult. The enemy's cunning. He wants to divide. Clearly a tactic. Steal, kill, hurt, divide however he can. That's his tactics. And, and also, he... He works with a lot of momentum, doesn't he? Because there's differences between us. We look around and we're so different from one another in so many ways. And so those differences are just avenues of opportunity to divide and be separate. And where there are differences, I love these words from Francis Schaeffer. He says this, so let us consider this. Is my difference with my brother in Christ really crucially important? We might need to stop after that question and just be done with it. Is it crucially important? (laughs) But if it is, he says, if so... It is doubly important that I spend time upon my knees asking the Holy Spirit, asking Christ to do his work through me and my group, that I and we might show love even in this larger difference that we have come to. He says that the Christian is to show such love in the midst of a necessary difference with his brother that he is willing to suffer loss. You remember how Sarah Williams said both choices were costly? It's going to be costly, but we need to be willing to receive that cost because we're family with one another. And here's what we do. He says they approach the problem with a desire to solve it rather than with a desire to win it. Remember, there's only one competition. Outdo one another in showing honor. There's no desire to win here. We've won in Christ. We are the company of victors in Christ. So there's no desire to win. There should be the genuine desire, the genuine love that we're trying to be after in one another. And so this is what Paul calls us to. Live in harmony with one another. And man, this command is needed. This approach to one another is needed, that we approach with a desire to love and to solve, not to win. And if we approach things this way, if these are crucially important differences and we beg the Lord to help us through this, that we might show love in our differences and we approach with a desire to solve and to love, we might experience the, the joy and the blessing of harmonious life with one another. Psalm 133, verse 1, how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity, when there's an actual family unit that loves one another genuinely with sincere love that outdoes one another showing honor that moves toward one another even in our differences knowing that we're not trying to win anything that we've won in christ and we just want to love one another well christians can be should be known for their love and harmony with one another and before watching world that's the thing that should be the most uh, proclaimed of our community they love one another They're in harmony with one another. That can be true despite our differences, despite even the enemy's tactics, because what unites us is far, far greater than what differences we have. A.W. Tozer says this, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? Pianos are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they can possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. You want to move toward harmony? You need to have your heart tuned to Christ. Ten looks to him, for everyone look at yourself. And when we have a community of people doing that, man, we're going to live in harmony with one another. And it's that looking to christ and away from ourselves self-forgetfulness that's going to empower the rest of verse 16 don't be haughty but associate with the lowly never be wise in your own sight pride is constantly warned against in the scripture pride in scripture clearly draws the active opposition of god that is not an opposition you want to be on the other side of and that's what pride draws right god doesn't like pride it draws his opposition, and Paul warns against it. The Scripture warns against it all over. And instead he says, don't be haughty, don't be arrogant. Instead, associate with the lowly. He calls for us to get low. Within the family, there's no one that's above some lowly task or above some sort of lowly people, however we classify those. And both translations, both ways of taking this verse are out there. right? There, there's a division. Right? Does he mean don't, uh, don't associate with the lowly task? Or or associate with lowly tasks, or associate with lowly people, and I say, again, we don't know why not both. God took on flesh to associate with the lowly. God did lowly tasks. He, He takes off his garment and he wraps on the towel and he gets the wash basin out and he starts washing feet feet of those who would betray him and leave him. That's a lowly task. And he says to those disciples after he does that, you see what I've done for you? If that's not too low for your master and your Lord, it's certainly not too low for you. You're not above this either. Disciples are, are those who are, are, are not after a position. We're in Christ. We have the position we need. We're not, we're not after power. We're, Christ is with us. The hope of glory in us, we have all the power we need. Jesus is Lord. We're, we're not after honor. God is the one who's worthy of honor. We're trying to seek the honor of one another in Christ. And what that does is it frees us up to associate with the lowly, whether that be lowly tasks or lowly people. Probably one of the reasons for not associating with the lowly is given at the first of verse 16 and the end of verse 16. Live in harmony with one another and never be wise in your own sight. self-righteousness constantly a threat within the camp self-sufficiency is constantly present and what paul says in the midst of that reality that we live in and swim in is he says don't be wise in your own sight mirrored in proverbs 3 verse 7 i've heard that you will always look back on your past self and think that you were lacking wisdom man if you don't Never be wise in your own sight. But I can think back and think, man, five years ago, one year ago, a day ago, I wasn't wise. I handled that unwisely. You're always going to look back on your former self and think, man, there there was some wisdom lacking there. And guess what that should do? That should inform right now. So we can say, man, in 10 years from now, I'm going to look back and be like, I lack some wisdom. Let that inform your presence. And let it lead you to say, I will never Never be wise in my own sight. That word never is not just like a stop it. It should like not just stop it, but it should be unthinkable that you would be wise in your own sight. Because every 10 looks to Christ, we have one look at ourselves, and that one look at ourselves is enough to know that we're not wise in our own sight because we keep looking at Christ, and his wisdom far exceeds our wisdom. So I keep looking at myself and I'm thinking, I'm, I'm lacking. Yeah, amen. We keep moving towards this because by the mercies of God, we are what we are, right? And we know that we're lacking. And so Paul is saying essential for your life together, for harmony with one another, for associating with the lowly, for associating with lowly task is that you have humility. Augustine said this, he said when a certain rhetorician was asked what was the chief rule in eloquence, he replied delivery. What was the second rule, delivery? What was the third rule, delivery? And so he says, so if you ask me concerning the precepts of the Christian religion, first, second, third, and always, I would answer humility. And with this rule, I'm sure that every Christian has work to do to get low before God. The place of humility, the place of verse 16, uh, of not being wise in your own sight, of not being haughty, is not a place to avoid. It is a place to run to headlong. That is the place of blessing. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That's the place to run to. I want to run to the place where God is pouring grace out. And that's the place of humility. And I want to run away from the places that God is opposing. And that is a place of haughtiness, arrogance, and pride. And so we need to not avoid the place of humility, but run to it. We do that because we have received the mercies of God. Because we actually needed mercies something that we didn't deserve we didn't merit we didn't earn it we received it freely because he is merciful and he's the merciful one and so we run to those kinds of places where we can receive the grace and the mercies of God and humility is that place so Paul man he he has spread the seed hasn't he he just threw seed out far and wide he he, the the bombs he he just cast them out and he's hoping that the spirit he's trusting and confident that the spirit will detonate them and when these take root When the Spirit takes this word and he lights it up in his people, right? And in those who have the Spirit within them, man, heaven on earth takes place. That's the church. It's the suburbs of heaven. That's the community of people. Here's what we should do when we finish these marks in verse 16. We hold up these marks and we start examining and what we do is we don't first examine the community. We don't take these marks and say, I'm going to examine the community first. We take these marks and we examine our own hearts first. And then we, where we failed, we retrace the mercies of God and move toward the community with this kind of mercy pulsing through us, love pulsing through us toward one another, longing to see those marks shown through us and in our midst among the community. That is the community that belongs to Christ. And when we think about these, we know, just like the advice given to the rower, right, we're not meant to row across the finish line alone. We're all meant to be pulling together in harmony and in love with one another. This is the reality that Jesus bought. His death has given us this reality to walk into. He's freed us up from sin that we might walk in the grace of life together, all pulling in harmony and love with one another. This is the reality that he supplies as the great high priest who sits at the right hand of God, who will give grace to help us in our time of need. This is the reality that he will also complete one day. Amen. And while we wait, let's pull together by remembering what Jesus has done for us and letting that pulse through us. We do this in one way. We're going to pull together right now in the Lord's Supper. This is where we all look away from ourselves, very intentionally, even physically, and we look to Christ and what he has done and what he will do and complete when he comes. And so if you're in Christ, you've trusted in Jesus, let's pull together now and let's go receive the bread. Remember Jesus' body that was broken for us. Remember his blood through taking the cup, that his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of sins, and he's established a new covenant community who belong not only to him but to one another. Pulling together in love toward him and love toward one another, remembering that we're the community that's imperfect, moving towards perfection, because one day he's coming back and he's going to finish this thing. So if you're in Christ, come pull together in this meal. If you're not in Christ, man, he's worth your life. Would you surrender your life to him? Like, repent of your sin, trust fully in him, receive him, and then we can prepare you to take this meal next time. But if you're in Christ now, it's time to pull together. Let's pray.
2: Pray. Father in heaven Lord to pray in response to this passage appropriately would be the rest of the day but Lord if there's one thing that we know we can point back to that relates to all of these one another's that relates to all of these evidences of your work in us, Lord, it's your love that you would choose to love us, that you would choose to sacrifice what you did because of that love is the greatest and most humbling thought we could ever entertain. And yet you did, and you've called us now, Lord, to to love like you loved us, to be patient with each other, to serve one another to be humble, to persevere, to be genuine, to fight against evil, Lord, to take off the masks that we all have, to allow you to work in and through us, God, that you might be glorified in how we love each other. That's what you called us to do and to teach others, Lord, to do that, those who don't know you, to show them, Lord, through the love that they see us show one another, God. You you use that as a great testimony and witness. So Lord, help us to be faithful, to obey these commands, not because we're following a set of rules, Lord, but because our hearts are overflowing with gratitude for the love that you've shown us, Lord. and. We just want a pure desire to love others the way you've loved us. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.